pursuing happiness and what that looks like for us is, is being received. So thank you for the encouragement. I want to start this morning and I'm going to help have two men help us to face some realities. Two men that were in their own time, in their own life, pursuing happiness. You know, people are people, no matter when they lived or what they became famous for. At some point, people just like you and me, they're just trying to live a life that feels right, that has reward, that's meaningful, that they have some joy and happiness about. And so I want to introduce you to a, a man named Horatio Spafford. He was a very successful attorney, businessman, lived in the Chicago area. I'm sure he had to deal with flight delays as well, except for the fact that he lived in 1871, so he probably didn't have to face some of that. But he was... Uh, he had a thriving business. He had real estate all throughout Chicago, and, and tragedy visits this man's life. Uh, in 1871, the great Chicago fire decimated the city, destroying most all of his property in the process. Uh, he continued to deal in real estate and try and be a part of the recovery there in the city. The economy slowed tremendously in uh, 1873. He decided in the midst of the slow economy to travel to Europe. He and his wife and four young daughters would travel to Europe just to get away. It had been a difficult season in their lives. And and just as he is boarding, uh, they're about to get on the ship. Pressing business issues arose and he needed to return uh, to Chicago and uh, decided to go ahead and send his wife and four children on ahead. And as they sailed for or steamed for the uh, Europe, they collided with another vessel. And in 12 minutes, their ship sank. And he would receive, actually, this is an actual copy. He would receive this telegram from her days later. His wife saying, saved alone. What do I do? In a moment, This man and woman lost everything, lost their four daughters as this ship sank in just 12 minutes and miraculously she survived and managed to cling to a piece of wood and was rescued. He got the telegram, jumped on the next boat that he could, crossing the Atlantic, he asked the captain, when we get near to where the accident occurred, could you let me know? And he received a summons from the captain saying, we, this, is, this is the location where the ship went down. He went down into his cabin and he penned this hymn that you and I sing quite a bit. You'll recognize it as soon as I start to read the words to you. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate 
and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. For me, be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live. If Jordan above me shall roll, no pang shall be mine, for in death as in life, thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, rest of my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. A song in the night, O my soul. You know, there, there's, there's aspects to this song that are overwhelming when you understand the moment in which it's being written. There's something here that I, I don't in any way want this to fa- sound insensitive. This man wrote this out of a collapsed life. And he said something, and I, I think if, you, if you've offered counsel that's been biblical to people, this, this is the way your counsel should sound. You visit with a person whose life has fallen. It's, just, it's caved in on them. Um, that's a real event. It brings real damage. Real overwhelmingness is taking place in their lives. Your counsel shouldn't minimize that. It shouldn't be, well, you know, well, you're a Christian. You know, like you're just, well, let me just quote a Bible verse. You know, we do that sometimes. We're minimalistic in how we engage one another's need. But he's, his writing in this moment highlights something about the counsel for our souls as we walk through life. This was not a small event for this man, obviously. But when he writes this, him, he writes about bigger events than this event. And that's the key to your counsel. Christ has done something bigger than what life can do to us. Things that we lose in this life are smaller than what we have gained in our relationship to Christ. And for this man, you would think that he's writing this song. It makes sense that he's writing about the sorrows like sea billows that roll. But it's almost like, what, what, what was he doing with my sin? Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. How, how did that make it into this song? This is a song about sorrow. Because my sin is what separates me from the redemption of God. And he was aware that God is redemptive even in this moment. And my own sin has been nailed to the cross and it's been removed from the God who is redemptive to me. You know, if you follow a man named Job's life, Job's resume is written there in this first few verses of Job. You know Job's story. Nobody is more famous for suffering and for suffering loss than Job. 
Job reaches a point in his life where in spite of all these great benefits and blessings that were in his life, he is going to suddenly lose it all. His children, his business, his name and reputation. Right? Isn't it bad when you go through horrible stuff, but then you got people who stand around you and say, hey, probably going bad because of something you didn't do right, man. Something wrong with you, the way you, you know, something hidden. Nobody knew, Job. You look like you got this great resume, man, but this is the way life is. Nobody gets away with it. I wonder what really Job was like. And his name is lost. His health is lost. But if you read Job, when you get to Job chapter 42 in the end, he doesn't, doesn't sing Horatio Spafford's hymn, obviously. He's predating that. But it is well with his soul. And, you know, I want to highlight these two guys because all of us are, are in this pursuit, this quest for happiness. We want wellness of soul. We want to be able to stand on our front porch in the morning with a cup of coffee in our hand and say, it is well with my soul today. That's how we want to greet life. Every one of us wants that. And we're going to be challenged. We're going to be challenged in different ways. Some of us are just going to be challenged to be happy while we do mundane and routine life. Right? Nothing extraordinary is happening. No terrible event has, has come up in our lives. But, you know, don't raise your hands, but some of us just have a hard time having a sense of joy and happiness as we just do routine. Right? It's just the mundane. It's the boring. It's just familiar. It's, it, there's nothing new coming. Uh, I, or I'm having midlife crisis. Why? Because something terrible happened at midlife? No, because you've sort of experienced all the, the little things and adventures and new items that you thought you'd have in life. And now you're, you're 50 and you're kind of like, okay, I don't know that there's too many more new ones left for me. And well, now, now what do I do? How do I feel about me now? Just the routines of your life can make for a challenging, unhappy existence. And then there's the events like Horatio Spafford's life contained, or Job's life, and our lives have contained. Moments in which suddenly life sweeps away something that's been a source of our happiness, and it is no longer available to us. And that's what life's going to be like for some of us. That's a reality. And I want to ask you do, you, do you have a game plan for that? We all agree when we started this series, we are all in the business of happiness. Whether you actually signed a document that said that, you are in the business of happiness. You're, you've been busy in 2014 trying to figure out and do things that are going to make you happy. Do you have a game plan for your happiness when things become boring, mundane, and routine? Are you, are you ready for life to feel that way? Because it is going to feel that way. And do you have a game plan for happiness when suddenly life changes in ways that are very unattractive and even painful? All right, so in either of those categories, I, I'll say this, put this in your outline. The pursuit of happiness is not for amateurs. But let's face some facts. A lot of us are pursuing happiness in a really, really amateuristic way. We've not thought this through very well. We don't have a destination. 
We haven't carefully considered what is it that really makes up this commodity called happiness that we're all after. We're amateurs. And so, you know, I, and you, you grew up with amateurs. Maybe you still are. You hung around loud amateurs. You know, you got that, that giddy little schoolgirl amateur, right? That young junior high mentality, that laughter, that goofy little silliness that everything's just kind of goofy, silly, funny. And you just love that environment and you just want to live and thrive in just the silly little girl land. Uh, and some people just keep doing that, right? At 20, 25, 30, still that way, right? From a guy's perspective, you know, you got that irresponsible frat boy approach to life mentality, right? I mean, I can remember, you know, there's something about becoming a Christian for me at was saved as a teenager. So life, life suddenly took on a bunch of information as in my teenage years. There was, there was eternity. There was a God who was a certain way. There was a lot of discovery that took place that, that kind of made me be done with some childish things a lot earlier than I would have had I not come to know Christ. So I think I kind of sat staring at other people that were my age or within a few years of my age and just amazed, amazed in college that, you know, high school classmates still, the story to celebrate, the loud presentation was just how drunk I was over the weekend, man. It's like, yeah, I I would get together with these guys sometimes and it's like Monday and this is what they have to present. Man, dude, Friday night, oh, I was so out of it. Uh, Like this irresponsible, you're just in college on your dad's nickel, wasting your life. Congratulations. But how many of you guys know that if you live that for a little while, it's got this expiration date on it that suddenly that becomes very unfulfilling. You know, there's only so many weekends you can rehearse about how staggeringly stupid you were. And still feel like, I'm feeling good, man. I'm, I am a happy camper. At some point, you don't feel happy about that anymore. You still got the story to tell, and you still staggered around. You probably laughed at a few things, but that just erodes. It's not a basis for happiness. So how do you go about pursuing happiness? What are you expecting from your life? What's your game plan? Right. In, in some of our own amateurish approach, some of us, you know, unlike Horatio Spafford or Job, some of us, some of you guys can remember moments where you have taken God to court in a happiness lawsuit. Right? You just, you're, you're at this place in your life where life doesn't feel the way you thought it would. It doesn't reward you the way you thought it would. It's, it's not fulfilling the way you thought it would. And, and God, God's got his day in court with you, buddy. He, you, are t- you are suing him for unhappiness in your life. And your story doesn't look anything like Job or Horatio Spafford. He just got a broken car and got a call for a ride. I mean, like, ah, just miserable. Take God to court. Okay, guys, well, are we just immature in how we pursue happiness and what it really means to be happy? So before I get us off into more of the gazing elements, I just want to better inform our pursuit 
of this thing we're calling happiness. And, and I'm kind of digging down into this a little bit before we jump into the next realm uh, for a couple of reasons. Now, just honestly, a couple of reasons. Uh, one, many of you have only been here once or twice this whole year. So you're kind of like saying, okay, so we're still in this series that I barely remember. Um, second, in the information age, I find there's a river of information flowing through my head. A little bit of information gets washed out just like that. So I, I want us to sit in this a little bit longer and experience it a little bit more. So I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit more about wisdom and knowledge, our companions in the pursuit of happiness. And, and by the way, I, I'm, I'm not at all trying to fault our pursuit of happiness. Right? Sometimes we make it sound more noble that if you're, if you're a Christian and, and God is in the equation, then you shouldn't care about happiness. You've got more serious things to worry about. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't believe that's biblical. Right? Bible flaunts things like rewards. The Bible labels some things good. The Bible celebrates certain things and criticizes other. Every time it does that, it's encouraging you, aim at that. That's valuable. That matters. Want those things in your life. So I don't believe God at all wants you to be austere and stoic. That's more spiritual than somebody who's eagerly wanting to experience happiness in life, to experience joy. In the, I want to be able to say it's well with my soul. I think that's right. But that's got to be pursued with wisdom and with knowledge, right? Wisdom reveals that happiness is more than easy momentary pleasure. Your, your happiness is more than that. You know, I'm grateful for Evan sharing with us this morning just, just those realms of our lives where we just we have we have thought if I could just have momentary pleasure, then that's happiness. But most of us have lived long enough to know that's those momentary pleasures. They're isolated from the other realities that come with them, right? If you're here and you've ever lived through a season of your life where where drugs and alcohol were major issues in your life, you can remember back. People do drugs alcohol for either the euphoria of the moment that you are being affected by the drug or as an escape and a distraction from life. That's primarily the two reasons. So either way, there's a sense of pleasure in that, right? If, if life is hard, depressing, disappointing, and I can drug myself, I get to be distracted from the weightiness of my life. Okay, I like that. Or if I'm just bored and, you know, being a normal brain-working human being isn't really doing it for me, I can inject something in my body or smoke something and my brain all of a sudden starts to see life upside down, sideways, blurry and bouncing. It's like, wow, that's kind of interesting. So either way, it's pleasure for a moment. But go back and visit that season. It's, it's pleasure for a moment because the high wears off, followed by this feeling that you're wasting your life. You're you're a pothead wasting your life. Life is going by and you are watching it from a distance leave you behind. Or the fallout of irresponsibility that comes with drug and alcohol abuse, that you're losing jobs and people in your life are being affected by it and you lie to them constantly so they don't trust you. And you live in that as well. I mean, how do you like the guilt that you have while you're doing your drugs? Do you like that? Is that fun, really? 
is going nowhere fun, really. But I mean, understand, it was, it was momentary pleasure, so it kind of captured me for a second. But when you visit the whole 24-hour span of that, it's a few hours of fun, followed by a bunch of hours of regret and misery, and I wish I'd stop doing this. Or, or if you're sexually active, you're promiscuous, you've adopted a sleep-around, hook-up mentality, guys or gals, and you've got this resume of impurity where you're with this person and you're with this person and you're with this person and you're with this person and, you, and, and you've kind of lost track, lost count. That's just the lifestyle that you've em, embraced. Well, well, listen, I mean, let's, let's all be honest about that. The reality of what God created physiologically was that sex was intended to be pleasurable. So the, no argument there. Pleasure for a moment. So there are these moments where there's pleasure, but back away and look at the whole timeline. There's this sense that's not pleasurable and that's not happy when you start recognizing not a one of those people really love me. They're just using me for the pleasure that they could have. Or I was just using them for the pleasure that I could have. So you have this sense of alienation, this sense of loneliness, though you're intimate with people, but there's no sense of connection and your heart doesn't resonate that I'm being loved and I'm loving someone else. There's this sense of guilt that underlies those actions. There's fears that occupy your life. What if, what if someone knew? What if people find out? What if I get a disease? Right? So when you back away, there's this momentary pleasure But it's an unwise pursuit because in reality, you're not happy. But I got a few moments where I have experienced pleasure. Well, you and the drug addict, yeah. But you're not happy, right? So wisdom needs to inform our pursuit of happiness. It just can't be. Let me just pursue it at all costs. But not just wisdom, knowledge. Knowledge needs to inform our pursuit of happiness. And I'm going to spend some time today on this one. Knowledge, this provides insights into our design. You are, you are created. You are designed to engage life. So, so you're wired for happy. You really are. God has given you the ability to experience pleasure. He's given you the ability for joy to be realized. But you are designed for that. It's kind of important that you understand your design. Right there, there are there are small appliances in your house that you can use them for different stuff. You know, my wife's got this incredibly heavy blender. I mean, this thing is just heavy. It's got an extension cord on it. Um, Because I understand its design, I've never been tempted to use it as a boat anchor. I think it would work. I mean, it's very heavy. It's got a little cord on it, so I could throw it over and you know pull it back up when I'm done fishing. But that's not what that thing's designed for, right? It's, it's designed for something, and I'm going to benefit from it if I understand the design. If I don't understand the design for it, then I'm going to misuse it. And I might think, hey, I've got the most awesome boat anchor, and I'll pull this thing out and show it to you. And you look at me like, dude, do you, do you know what that is? Do you know what that can do? It, you, you'd really enjoy it if you'd use it correctly. All right, well, some of us are running through life 
misusing the life that we've been given because we never understood why we were created. The, the design element to us has escaped us. And can I just tell you, dude, if, if you'd figure out what that thing called your life is really designed for, you'd really enjoy it. But a lot of folks never get there. So in your outline there, if you'd like to fix your happiness, then you have to have wisdom and knowledge to understand the nature of happiness for a human being. So let's explore the knowledge of our existence and the pursuit of happiness. Now, I'm going to admit this to you, so if you need to just kind of sit on the edge of the seat to make yourself pay attention here. Um, This is a little heady stuff. A little bit probably in categories you don't spend a ton of time thinking. Well, maybe you do. Some do. Uh, but let me, let me just tell you one of the reasons why I'm, I'm going to dig into this category. One, I think it's just important to understand how God designed us. But our, our culture is going through a number of shifts and changes right now. And uh, I'm reading a, a new book by David Wells about our culture and how it's affecting the church. And it's a pretty, pretty good-sized book, and you don't get 19 pages into this book before he starts bringing up the topic of the new atheists. 19 pages in, he's going to talk about the new atheists. Can I tell you that historically, atheists were people nobody paid attention to, and atheism was something nobody paid attention to either. And he cites a, a, a study of, in the West, at one point, statistically, 90 to 97% of people were theists. But now I remember these studies because I remember reading them back in the 90s. About 4%, it used to be true that 4% of people in a room uh, didn't believe in God. 96% of people did. He says in 2013, the number shifted to 80% of people. That's a huge statistical change because... Atheism is being brokered, written about, reinforced, presented. It's aggressive. It's, it's, its tone is to make theism sound like it's for idiots. And you are going to come across it. You already are. You're going to come across some of the guys who are the most prolific writers in these categories too. And you, you're going to need to be prepared to think your way through that carefully. And so I'm going to just offer a little bit of some help in that category. But when you go to experience happiness, question, what exactly are you? What all makes up your reality? What what are all the parts and influential aspects of life that make up who you are? Because all those things are touching you and they're affecting your happiness. So we're all in the business of happiness. We might need to know, what exactly am I? I had, I had two questions I wanted to get to, but I'm, I think I'm only going to have time for one. So let me just look at this first one. <clears throat> one, are you a carbon-based organic mechanism? A computer with flesh who's created to have information plugged into it with programmed responses, whether you call those programmed responses instincts, Or just some mechanism that responds to certain stimulus. And to exist in the same realm as an automobile or a copy machine. Except you've got flesh on. You're organic. You're an organic copy machine. Does that kind of describe, does that bear witness with you? Anybody in here going, yeah. 
Well, it's interesting. There's a website out there. It's called Machines Like Us. This is what it says as it tries to explain itself. It says, Machines Like Us is a web resource for those interested in evolutionary thought, cognitive science, synthetic life, and artificial intelligence. It promotes the following concepts. I just picked two of them. One, evolution is the guiding principle behind life on earth. Guiding principle, defining guiding principle of life is evolution, according to this Machines Like Us website. Number four, living organisms are magnificent machines. See, you really are a copy machine with flesh. Robust, dynamic, self-sufficient, precisely tuned to their environment, deserving our respect and study. This is so, this is so lame. <laughs> deserving, why? why? What makes it deserving? See, people use terminology. They have no idea where it comes from. Why does this deserve something that that doesn't? See, the second you do that, you create a value system, and value systems scream somebody created priorities of right and wrong immediately, right? So I don't get this, you know, deserving. Okay. Okay. We're all machines. We're all, all of us are machines. So uh, your house catches on fire and you got one trip back in. What's you going to, which machine you're going to save? You're going to save the lawnmower or your iPad. How many of you guys are choosing the lawnmower? Let me just see. All right, just one, Ron, all right. Must be quite a lawnmower, dude. Uh, All right, well, since we're all machines, you left your iPad in a library that caught on fire. All the books are burning. You know exactly where your iPad is. One trip in, now the only complicating factor here is somebody else's child was left in there too. What are you going to go get? Now, everybody in their right mind goes, well, you go get the child. Okay, you understand, you just screamed out a value system that evolution does not provide for you. Matter of fact, it makes absolutely no sense. You should just go get whatever you prefer. And since you don't even know that child, you don't know their name, you don't know the family, you're never going to see them again. But there's stuff in your iPad that you need. There's pictures in there. Well, they're saved in the cloud, so I guess that kind of wrecks that illustration. But But you just love your iPad, right? I mean, it's part of your life. It goes with you places. You value that thing. And since it's just one machine versus another machine, does it really matter? I mean, you create the value system, right? It just doesn't sound right, does it? Just something in my heart says, that's just not right. That's not right. I don't agree with that. And most every human being would say they don't agree with it either. Because that human being has a dignity uniquely ascribed to human beings that's different than anything else in creation. Evolution doesn't provide that. Evolution just kind of said everything started like a big race at the Big Bang and boom, and some things outran some other things. Some things got more developed than some other things, and, and here we all are. But, you know, everything just came from the same stuff. It's a boom, and here it is. But that's not how God creates, and so God creates a value system when he creates. 
And our lives kind of make sense in that realm. But there are some aspects to your life that I, I want to tap into today. There's, some, there's something about what makes you you that's not so scientific, if you'll let me do that. And listen, I'm going to sound a little hostile to science today. Um, I'm, not, I'm not hostile to science. I'm, I'm an engineer by degree. I ended up becoming a pastor. I had to hang out in a lot of physics a lot of science uh, sort of teachings in, in school. My, my brain sort of gravitates toward that stuff. That's why I got an engineering degree. So I'm not anti-science. But most of us don't think correctly about science. So I just want to dabble with how we think about science. Science is appropriate. Science does good. But your whole life is not defined by math and science. Right? Our education system gives away the fact that there's more to us than intellectual math and science issues. Right? There's, there's emotion in us. There's a value system in us. There's ambition for things in us. There's a sense of guilt sitting in this room today. Why do you feel guilty? Because there's a sense of morality in this world. That certain things simply are right and wrong. And you can play with the psychology all you want. Say, well, it's just a product of your upbringing. Listen, across the globe, certain things are always right and they're always wrong. The human heart knows that. I can't necessarily scientifically prove that, but there's something in my heart that knows that. There's something in man's heart that identifies that I'm more than just a a computer wrapped in flesh. Right? When we create education systems, we don't just have math and science. Those are the two classes you take, math and science. That's it. you got math and science because those are the most important things in life, see. Everything that can be explained mathematically or scientifically, that's what really matters the most to you. Really? No. As a matter of fact, quite honestly, most of you, if you really think through math and science, those are the things that matter the least to you. And the education system creates classes like art classes. History. Why do we want to know about history? What is our obsession with history? Psychology. Why do we want to study the way the mind works and the way we think our way through things? There's a whole lot more to us than just stuff that sits in a math or a science class. Interesting, Edgar Andrews wrote a book called Who Made God? He says, the scientist's dream is to develop a theory of everything. Scientific theory that will encompass all the working of the physical universe in a single self-consistent formulation. Fair enough. But there's more to the universe than matter, energy, space, and time. Can you underline that? Because you're going to interact with people in the scientific world, that's what they specialize in. And you should say, yes, you do. Yes, you do. They do. They specialize in matter, energy, space, and time. Now, if that's all there is to life, well, then they're the go-to guys. But there's more to life than that. That's part of life. Most of us believe in the real existence of non-material entities, such as friendship. Love, beauty, poetry, truth, faith, justice, and so on. 
the things that actually make human life worth living. Right? Are you bothered here today? Your existence is being affected by something? I bet it's in that list. Maybe not in the science and math list, but it's on that list. You're being affected by friendship, by your sense of belonging and care and love and how you experience it, how it's given to others. Beauty sense of of worth and value, things being right and wrong, those things matter to you. A true theory of everything, therefore, must embrace both the material and non-material aspects of the universe. Why, Why make this point? Because you and I are in the happiness business. Happiness means understanding about something about us, about the way in which we are wired to experience life in the hopes that we will be happy creatures. But there's something in me that's probably just like you that wants to love and be loved. That just is in me big time. Is it in you? Does that matter to you? Wants to belong. It wants friendships and it wants qualities like loyalty and care and responsibility. I want to be responsible. I feel guilty when I'm not responsible. Maybe you do too. What the guilt? What, what is that? See, there's something in me as a created being that has a bunch of qualities that experience life that maybe don't fit into a math formula or a science experiment. And I don't know that's true of each one of us. So, you know, don't, don't lump me in with my existence equation with a rock or a roach or a redwood tree and then there's us and 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 all of us have the same existence equation we're just like them really are we really just like them when's when's the last time you dug through a rock pile and just to your surprise you dug out this little bitty book little bitty book little rock book you got your magnifying glass out and you begin to look at it and it was, it was the history of rocks. <laughs> the rocks were studying their history because they're just very curious about themselves and where they've come from. Really? No. I don't know where Donnie Bourgeois is, but you know, Donnie, when you, kill the, when you kill the roaches behind the walls, I mean, I don't know, did you ever just like find a bunch of them sitting around having a study meeting? You know? <laughs> there they are. Books broken out, talking philosophy of roach life. Desperate to find out, who am I? Where did I come from? What does, what does roach life really mean? Right? Gene and I wandered through the redwood forest in California. Beautiful trees, hundreds of years old. Uh, we found no evidence that they were interested in themselves, where they've come from. None of them looked guilty, depressed, nothing. Just, you know, didn't walk by a tree and go, man, what you got on your mind? You you don't look real happy. Are you okay? <laughs> but walk by a human being in the mall and, and that's different, isn't it? Right? So when, when you try and assign me the same reality as a, a rock or a roach or a redwood, my soul rejects that. It says that's ridiculous. And your soul is right. Yeah, but math and science have them some things to say about rocks and about plants and... Okay, that's cool. Let them say what it has to say. I don't have a problem with science. But there's more to you than what math and science can measure. 
And you know that's true. Ain't none of y'all broke out a microscope this morning trying to figure out how to get, to get happy. Honey, I'm not feeling happy today. Can you go get me the microscope? I'm going to need to see something there. No, you didn't do that. All right, so how do you go about discovering? Now, this, this is where I'm getting a little heady on you. How do you go about discovering what you need to know in order to define who and what you are? This, this is where I say we're amateurs, right? These are questions that we never ask. How do you go about discovering who and what you are so you can figure out what it is that's actually going to inform and make you happy? And question, is everything that is discoverable equally discoverable? Can you know everything at the same level? Or are there some things that are somewhat hidden from us? Look at this, Evan Andrews wrote an article, and this is a guy who's, who's not hostile to science. He's, a, he's writing about science here on his blog, top 10 famous scientific theories that turned out to be wrong. He just, he's not a hostile science guy. He's, a, he's kind of an approbating science. He says, one of the best aspects of science has always been its readiness to admit when it got something wrong. Theories are constantly being refigured, and new research frequently renders old ideas outdated or incomplete. But this hasn't stopped some discoveries from being hailed as important, game-changing accomplishments a bit prematurely. Even in a field as rigorous and detail-oriented as science, theories get busted. Mistakes are made, and hoaxes are perpetrated. The following are 10 of the most groundbreaking of these scientific discoveries that turned out to be resting on some questionable data. It is worth noting that most of these concepts are not necessarily wrong in the traditional sense. Rather, they have been replaced by other theories that are more complete and reliable. For instance, Aristotle's theory of spontaneous generation. Right? Aristotle's 4th century BC comes up with this idea that things spontaneously generate out of other things. They just, boom, no, no, can't explain it. But that's where stuff comes from. It just spontaneously generates. And this is a view that was held up till 1600s, 1700s by many, many people. And, and so they would, you know, You'd visit a carcass, a dead carcass, an animal, and you'd come back at some point and there's maggots all over the thing. Hmm, where'd that come from? And if you sat there with the dead carcass for days on end and stared at it, there would suddenly appear maggots on this thing. Nobody walked up and put them there, right? So science observes the immersion of maggots from out of nowhere and takes that data, formulates some ideas, and concludes that spontaneous generation. That's where that came from. And then someone in the 1600s begins to deal with scientific methods and says, you know, that's not quite how you arrive at observing information and data. So they change the way you look at stuff and get a better way of looking at it, and that changes the view on spontaneous generation. And more than anything, what changed the view was the microscope. All of a sudden, man has invented a device that can look at 
unobservable data. He has a device that can see unobservable data. So up until the microscope, you couldn't see what was going on at a different level. You follow me? And then the microscope comes along. And people don't believe in spontaneous generation anymore. How about the static universe theory for those of you who are physics buffs? And I know a lot of you are here just loving physics. I saw Brian this morning, Brian studying physics while he was in the lobby this morning. Um, Albert Einstein, he's a pretty smart guy, right? Can you think of anybody smarter than Albert Einstein? I don't know. Albert Einstein believed in a static universe. Right? In other words, the universe had a definable size, it had boundaries, and there was nothing beyond those boundaries, and those boundaries remained constant. Most scientists agreed with Albert Einstein on this. Up until about 1917, when some scientists began to think and observe the physical universe through some different thoughts and ideas, ideas that apparently Mr. Einstein didn't have. Now, when these ideas were perpetuated, Einstein opposed them. He didn't believe in them. He held to his original positions on a static universe. As a matter of fact, people say, well, the universe can't be static because if it were, then the universe would cave in on itself and become a giant black hole. And there was a scientific reason for that. And of course, to deal with the scientific objection to the universe being definable in size and collapsing, Einstein developed an explanation scientifically as to why the universe doesn't collapse on itself. And then somebody comes up with something called quantum mechanics. Right? I do want to take a poll here. How many of you guys could tell me what quantum mechanics is? All right, next question. How many of you guys believe that we don't live in a static universe, we live in a universe that is actually expanding? Let me see your hands. Okay, do you have any idea why you believe that? Because of quantum mechanics. That's why you believe it. But see, you didn't know anything about quantum mechanics. So you actually put your faith in something you know nothing about. I just want to show you something. It's dangerous. Dangerous to live in a world with information that's going to come washing up on your shoreline. Right? Here's, here's, here's quantum mechanics. I know you guys came to church for this. But every once in a while, I've just got to use my engineering degree. I'm desperate. Probably honors my parents that they didn't waste all their money. Quantum mechanics works like this. You know, light travels in waves, similar to sound travels in waves, right? So you're standing out on the highway, and somebody's blowing their horn, and they're coming at you, right? You hear the the sound? Watch how the sound pitch changes, right? It goes, you ever notice that? All right, well, that's, that, that pitch change is because the sound origin is moving toward you, and then it changes pitch when it begins to move away from you. All right, quantum mechanics recognize that a bunch of stuff travels in waves. Light travels in waves. Similar to sound, that when light is moving away from you, it travels toward the red hue, and so you see it with a red color. If, if light immersion is traveling toward you, it would be more towards the blue spectrum. When you look off into deep space as best you can, you discover that everything's kind of red looking. So quantum mechanics led people to formulate the thought that the universe is moving away from us. It is expanding. And okay, that's a a real 
Reader's Digest version of quantum mechanics. But up until quantum mechanics, Albert Einstein thought he was right, argued that he was right, developed supporting arguments to state that he was right, only to eventually think that there was some credibility in quantum mechanics. Now, quantum mechanics is peaking to the edge of the universe. How many of you guys know that's not like a bird's eye view? That's not like holding something in your hands right here, and you don't even have to put your glasses on to see it. You're peeking at the edge of the universe. See, now, this is the nature. This is the challenging nature of scientific information, right? So when you jump into the field of science and mathematics, okay, Install these two things in your head before you get lost in the conversation. Make sure you go into a conversation armed with these two things. I think I put them in your outline. One, observable data. Observable data. In other words, how much of the knowable data do we actually know? I'm not trying to twist your brain by asking you that. How much of the observable data do we actually know? Right before you had a microscope. How much of the observable data, were maggots observable before the microscope? Yes, they always existed and they always came into existence exactly the same way, but no one could observe it. So you came up with crazy ideas like spontaneous generation. How much of the observable data do you and I actually know? So if we take what we know I don't know. Y'all want to be arrogant today? We know 50% of everything there is to know. Let's just be arrogant. How many of y'all think that's a pretty high estimate? We know 50% of everything there is to know. Okay. When you go to draw your conclusions, how do you factor in the 50% that you don't know? When you go and make your conclusions. See, science stands and says, hey... Based on what we know, we know that the universe is this, and the universe is this old. And and science arrogantly stands and says that. But if you visit science as it developed through time, it said that before, until it discovered some new information. And it said, well, we need to update that. And then it discovered some new information, and it needed to update that. And it continues to do that to this day. Now, here's the other challenge got all this observable data. Second, you have the ability to observe and interpret the data. You have to be able to see it. You have to invent devices to see it. And then you have to interpret what you're seeing through that device. So, you know, the, the idea that science is this pure, it's like math. Look, look, there's aspects to science that are not two plus two equals four. But there are laws in science. Yeah, well, don't get lost in all that. You study the history of science, you find out science is not quite as qualified to absolutely answer everything about your existence as many scientists would lead you to believe. So that's important because you're going to go try and experience some happiness here, right? If, If you cannot discover God using man's current level of knowledge and his latest gadgets then we should conclude that God does not exist, right? Does that make sense? Based on all that we know about the physical universe, because remember, physics studies matter and space and time. Based on all that we know, we haven't 
We haven't seen God. We've, we've invented telescopes. We've looked as far away as we can. We've invented microscopes. And we've looked as small as we can. We've stared into both those devices and all the other devices that we have. No God. Therefore, God does not exist. What if he exists in the 50% of the knowledge that you haven't been able to get access to? What if he exists there? What, what does your heart tell you about whether God exists? Oh, well, there you go, Keith. I'm going to go injecting stupid into the conversation. What does my heart tell me? Well, no, man, what, what does my intellect tell me? Well, my intellect tells me you're a human being who has a head and a heart. And you're just not a computer wrapped in flesh who only has an intellect. That's it. There's nothing on the inside of you as a created being different than that. You and the rock and the roaches and the redwoods, you're all just alike. Just program with some instinctive responses to life. Your heart says something. And your heart matters. Because your heart may be connecting with something that you can't see in microscopes and you can't see through telescopes, but it's real, right? The Bible talks about stuff that's real, right? I'll put in your outline there a couple of passages. Revelation chapter four. We looked at this, the men's retreat. After this, I looked, Apostle John says, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. The first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. So this invisible realm is determinative about the future. Come up here, John, and see something that you've never seen before. And up until this moment, you had no way of proving it even existed, John. Come up here and see this, and I'm going to show you based on it what will happen. So I'm going to show you something in a different realm that you can't see through a telescope and you can't see through a microscope. But John, it's real. And as a matter of fact, it's so real, it determines the future. That's what the Bible says. Ezekiel and Isaiah visit the same throne. Right? That at one moment, at one moment, you got Ezekiel standing with his feet in exile. You got Isaiah standing in a location. You got... John on the Isle of Patmos, at one moment, everything they know of through their senses has got nothing to do with a door going into heaven and a throne up there. Their senses tell them, this is it. And then God pulls back a veil and they see something that they've never seen before. God pulls back a veil. This is, this is the challenge to human arrogance. You're going to have a hard time inventing a device that can lower God to your level so you can see him. We're going to look at this one passage and then we're going to close. Look in Isaiah chapter 44. Everybody get your Bible out. Isaiah 44. Verse 21. All right, just, let me just stick a timeline on here because this is Isaiah the prophet. He's writing this somewhere between 740 and 720 BC. All right, time goes backwards, right? Till you get to zero. 740 to 720 BC, this is written down. 
It's findable. It's been written already. Here's what it says. Verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I'm going to read this whole passage, but just pay attention to that kind of stuff. Because that kind of stuff talks to you about your happiness, doesn't it? These are people who need something for their moment. They don't, they don't need a microscope to study an amoeba. They need a spirit scope to see something about God. So in their misery, in their struggle, God says, you will not be forgotten by me. That's what I'm like. Do you see me, Jacob? Do you see what I'm like? You will not be forgotten by me. I need to see that sometimes. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout! This is happy stuff, man. O depths of the earth, break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens. Right, he knows whether it's expanding, by the way, or not. Who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. I just wonder, does that apply to scientists and mathematicians? I'm just wondering. I'm not trying to insult anybody here. Just wondering. Who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. Who says of Jerusalem, this is where it gets kind of interesting here. Who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up the rivers. All right, stop for a second. This doesn't make any sense right here. Between 740 and 720 BC, Jerusalem is quite inhabited. Jerusalem's doing great. Jerusalem is living in the shadow of great prosperity. So houses got fresh coats of paint on them. The temple, it's standing, it's in Jerusalem. But Isaiah is standing and saying... Everything's going to be in ruins and it's going to need to be re-inhabited. Really? Really, Isaiah? What you've been smoking, man? Isaiah sees something. Not through a telescope. There's something that the Spirit reveals to him. It gets even more interesting. Verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now, why why is this so interesting? Because if you follow the timeline here, Isaiah stands at this moment, he sees something. He gets a revelation about something. He sees something. To him, it's real. And in the spirit, it is real. Between 740 and 720 BC. Fast forward to a 
to an existence that doesn't exist yet. Can you follow me? To 605 B.C. 130 years. And there's this nasty dude named Nebuchadnezzar. Now, different from 740 B.C., the Assyrians were in power. Nebuchadnezzar isn't an Assyrian. Nebuchadnezzar is a Babylonian. So you get a different realm of power than when Isaiah saw these things. And a different guy in charge. And he lays siege to Jerusalem. He burns the city to the ground. He destroys the countryside. He wrecks the temple. And the people go off into exile. And nearly 70 years later, the Babylonians aren't in power anymore. The Persians are in power. And there's this other guy who's the reigning king. And his name is Cyrus. For real? Yeah, actually, you guys remember I started this series. I I read from a relative of his who was named Cyrus, who fought with the, the king of Lydia. You guys go back and listen to the first message. Historically, there's a man from Persia named Cyrus that God told him what to do, and he did it. He didn't even know God was telling him what to do. And he set God's people free, and they go back, and they rebuild. Now, listen, why why does this matter? Because Isaiah stood in 740 B.C. and saw something that was real. But you couldn't see it in a microscope. You couldn't see it in a telescope. There was no science that could explain what he saw. But what he saw was real. In the same way that when John stood around the throne of God and and God said, come up here and I will show you what things will take place after these. Listen, this speaks to our existence. I'm not just a rock or a roach. I'm this unique being that God has created in his image that has access to the real God in a real realm of real things that you don't access scientifically. You, you access them by the Spirit, for God shows them to none of the arrogant, but to the humble. And you access them by faith. And that's real. And it will lead you in the whole category of what is it that's going to make you happy? Because if, if all you are is a deeply pondering rock or redwood, and you're going to try and be happy, uh, I don't have a prescription for you. Some people don't, I'm sure. But if you're God's people made in the image of God for God's purpose, like we hear in Isaiah, and you're wired to know and discover God, and you're curious about yourself and your history and your philosophy and your psychology because you want to know this God because that's what you're designed for, well, then when we get about the business of happiness in 2014, I need to know that, don't I? You understand why we need to look at what we know about ourselves? We're created by God to be happy. And we need to know these things. Let's, let's stand up together.
Lord, when we walked in here this morning, our hearts were not heavy, nor were we excited because of things seen in a microscope. Lord, the things that weigh us down, the things that affect our lives, the things that make up our happiness seem to sit most in another category. Lord, does that give us a clue about who we are and what we are? Lord, we are, we are not satisfied to have information fed to us and spit out other information. We're not computers and copy machines inanimate objects, Lord. And we're not even like the rest of creation. There is something in us that's looking for answers uniquely. There's something in us. There's something in our hearts that reach out for something and we do that like nothing else that's created. Lord, as we consider what will make us happy, Lord, if some are here this morning, Considering, am I happy? Am I happy with my life? What if we fall and pray to bad information, bad things to aim at, thinking about our lives like they don't really exist, they're different than what you've really made us to be? Lord, you spoke of things that the natural eye couldn't see. The Apostle Paul wasn't crazy. He said, We wrestle not against flesh and blood but against powers and spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Those were real. When Jesus looked upon people, he spoke about the inside of them as human beings. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Lord, I pray for those gathered here this morning. Lord, for each one of us. I pray in particular for those who've come in here today feeling as though life doesn't make sense. I feel empty. I feel unrewarded. I feel confused. I feel like something's missing. Lord, I pray right now you are opening their awareness. Lord, you are doing what you did for Isaiah. He saw things that in the natural he could not see. And John saw things in the heavens that he could not see unless you mercifully, graciously stepped in. Lord, would you do that this morning? Would you reach into lives, lives that have been sending off red, alarming signals, saying, I'm unhappy, I'm unhappy, and you're searching in the wrong places. There's something besides what you're after that seems to matter more. Lord, would you give us grace to respond to that, Lord? You are working in our lives, informing us that you made us. We are made in your image. We are wired by you. You did the engineering work on us. And there are things about this creation and temporary pleasures and stuff bounded by time and genetics and things in microscopes that can never satisfy our souls. God, we're beings who need to be able, we need to be able to say, it is well with my soul. So Lord, this morning, would you help folks who have been searching for you, just not realize they've been searching for you. Would you help them turn that corner? So if you're here right now 
and, and you know of what I'm speaking and your heart is bearing witness that my heart's been looking for God. I've been looking for God. Well, this morning, take, a, take the faith that's in your heart that God has placed there and reach out toward him. Say, God, here I am. God, show yourself to me. God, open my heart to you that I might see, that I might have eyes to see things that have always existed, but yet I've not seen them. Lord, give me eyes to see this morning. God, let me see what my life is really all about. Let me see eternal things. Let me see spiritual things, Lord. Let me see something more than physical pleasures and ideas. God, let me see the living God. Today, I I turn to you, God. I I put my faith in you. I, I believe in you, Jesus. I believe in you. Turn to God. Ask him to draw you to himself. Ask him to make himself more real to you. Step toward God by faith. Let God begin to lead you and introduce himself to you and make you aware of his power and his care and his love and his sense of belonging. I love it when I read the word and God tells his people, you are mine. You are mine. Lord, I thank you that it answers the cry of my heart to belong. Something in me wants to belong, God, and I'm, I'm wired to belong to you. Something in me wants to be loved and you, Lord, are the one, the source of that love. Something in me wants to be secure. It wants to know something that I've got a future, that my life has a purpose beyond today. And Lord, you reveal that. God, would you do that this morning? Would you open our hearts to you? Would you make yourself known to us? We come humbly to ask you to do that, not arrogantly to demand that you show up in our microscope, but humbly to ask you to show yourself to us in our hearts. And Lord, as we seek for happiness, Lord, I pray, I pray that we would be able to sing the song, It Is Well. It is well in the mundane and in the routine. It is well. And in the staggering, oppressive, threatening seasons of loss, it is well with my soul.